0: I want to talk to you guys about this incredible new lube I discovered called Woo. I actually used it the other day in my personal life, and holy shit, I'm in love. It smells and it tastes amazing. It's made from natural stevia, vanilla essence, and beeswax. It kills germs, it's full of antioxidants, and it's free from chemicals. The packaging is also very classy and discreet, so it's not an eyesore on your bedside table. So go to wooforplay.com, that's W-O-O-F-O-R-P-L-A-Y.com, and enter code HOLLY for a 10% discount. That's wooforplay.com and enter code HOLLY, H-O-L-L-Y. You guys are going to love this stuff. Today on Holly Randall Unfiltered, we are going to have a very educational episode I have a clinical psychologist and sex therapist, Dr. David Leon. He is the author of Ethical Porn for Dicks, The Myth of Sex Addiction, and Insatiable Wives. This is a really, really fascinating episode. We talk about all kinds of topics. We talk about how he does not believe in porn or sex addiction. We talk about slut shaming. We talk about uh, society's shaming of men for watching porn. We talk about healthy polyamorous relationships. We talk about female rape fantasies and why they have them and why it's okay to have them and so much more. These kinds of shows are some of my favorite because we really get behind the psychology of human sexuality and porn, and I think that for anybody who has issues with porn and feels any sense of shame for watching porn, is going to really get a lot out of this episode. So make sure that you guys pay close attention to this fantastic episode with Dr. David Lay. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today I have on sex therapist, Dr. David Lay. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for fitting me in your schedule. I understand you're actually out here to do some um, sex therapy teaching with some other
1: yeah, I'm a, a clinical psychologist originally and okay. um, uh, ended up with sex therapy, you know, kind of uh, certifications and training. With last name Lay, I really only had two <laughs> options, right? I could be a sex doctor or a politician involved in a sex scandal. Um, <laughs> I really thought closely on that last one, but Anthony Weiner holds the title. Yeah, oh God, right.
0: I can. I remember when that scandal first came out about him. I'm like, really? And his last name's Wiener? Mm-hmm. Really, exactly. really.
1: So I, uh, um, uh, I, one of the lucky things I get to do is travel and do trainings for mental health therapists. One mm-hmm. of the things that a lot of people don't know is that. Most therapists, roughly around 85 to 90 percent of mental health therapists in the country have no training in sexuality, none whatsoever, even though, you know, sexuality issues have something to do with people's lives, relationships, depression, satisfaction. You know, the more sex someone has, the greater levels of life satisfaction they report. Right. Right. But we're not teaching therapists to talk about sex, and so what happens is that any uh, you know if you are interested in a kind of sex or have more sex than your therapist, they diagnose you as a sex addict or an nymphomaniac or whatever. Um, and so you know my job now is training therapists on how to. How to deal with modern sexuality because society is really changing and we're becoming more open talking about sexuality issues that we've never talked about before. Um, Those are walking in the door for therapists and they're really kind of struggling.
0: That's really interesting that you say that because, you know, a lot of things that sex workers and girls in my industry complain about going to therapists is their fear of being judged. And actually, you know, August Ames, who was um, a guest on this podcast and was a friend and was an incredibly – Loved um, performer who, um, you know, committed suicide last year. When I talked to her about going to therapy, about her issues, you know, she talked Mm -hmm. about how... She felt judged for what she did, and she would go and see a therapist, and you know they would instantly be like, "Oh, well, you're a porn star. That's why you're having all of these right. problems. Right. Like you clearly, must, it's your you career choice. You must be
1: abused. You must be right. depressed. You must have low self self esteem, right, etc. And one, of the, you know, unfortunately, one of the things I used to used to train therapists about was how to treat uh, sex workers and 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 porn stars, etc. Um, without that judgment and shame because you know the the way the internet has changed porn um is that you know now there are porn stars in your neighborhood down the street, you know, doing webcamming and everything else. And if those folks talk to their neighborhood therapist, um yeah, the therapist is gonna make a lot of negative judgment um and assumptions. Unfortunately, there's just so much to talk about because therapists are so just woefully ignorant about sex yeah. that, you know, I had to drop that. But it's it's a fun topic to talk about and really challenges a lot of assumptions.
0: Yeah. Now, you've got uh, three books out, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about each one of them and basically what they cover?
1: Sure. So uh, my first book actually is called "Insatiable Wives: uh, Women Who Stray and the Men Who Love Them." And you know the story of that book is is kind of interesting because I um, my day job is as a clinical psychologist. I run a large behavior health organization. I have about eighty five staff. Um, we treat about three two thousand patients a year. And um, but I was clinically depressed, uh, banging my head against managed care organizations, state bureaucracy, HR issues, etc. Um, and I needed something to sink my teeth into. So I started collecting data for a ultimately unpublished study about polyamory and open relationships. Um, but during that, I ran into these two couples who practiced what they call the hot wife or the cuckold lifestyle. Cuckold porn is now the second most popular porn online. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't at the time, and I'd never really heard of this. And uh, I will – Openly admit, my knee-jerk assumption was, wow, this can't be healthy. You know, mm-hmm. the, these 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 husbands monogamous and their wives off screwing other guys and there's something wrong with that. But then I had to realize that um, these were remarkably healthy couples. Both of these first two couples I met had been married 20 and 30 years, had incredible marriages, wonderful communication skills, very successful families, careers, everything else. By every measure, we would identify these were healthy people. And I had to wonder, where did my assumption of ill health come from? And I realized that unthinkingly I had allowed, you know, a lot of bias around female sexuality, monogamy, promiscuity, et cetera, to, to infiltrate into my clinical thinking. And so I said, well, you know, wow, okay, what's going on here? And I looked at the literature, there was nothing published about it. Remember, I'm depressed. So I, um, said, okay, let me, let me write about this. I always wanted to write a book. <clears throat> I started um, interviewing couples, and on Craigslist, back before Sesta Fosta shut down you know Craigslist, everybody talks about the impact that Sesta Fosta had on sex workers on Craigslist and Backpage and everything else. But it also uh, dramatically impacted sex researchers as well, because now we have difficulty finding subjects mm-hmm. um, for sex research studies. And, um, but I, you know so I was posting ads on Craigslist, and couples would, would send me naked pictures of their wife, and I'd say "Thank you very much. She's lovely. <laughs> you know, and I swear to God I never had sex with a single one of these wives, <laughs> but I interviewed them and and interviewed the couples and 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 along the way i 'm reading everything I can about you know female sexuality, about the history of monogamy, evolutionary psychology around sexuality development, and everything else and At the end of it, I had a book where I really challenged basically the industry that had led to me making those knee jerk assumptions mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and really uncovering the way in which you know the this lifestyle could be could be done in a healthy way. It's the first um, and was the only kind of scholarly um, approach or, or consideration of cuckolding and hotwifing. Um, there's now been a couple of research studies published around it. Dan Savage and I, along with a researcher named Justin Lay Miller, um, earlier this year published a research study about gay cuckolding because up until up until recently up until uh, roughly when when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, there wasn't any gay cuckolding, right, but when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, all of a sudden it became kind of hot yeah for to violate that taboo
0: right, and
1: right. so all of a sudden gay cuckold as a fetish was born, and um the interesting thing was that as I was doing publicity for that first book um uh People didn't really want to talk about female sexuality or non-monogamy, but they were really interested in this one line in the book where I described this guy who had um, blown through three marriages because he wanted to watch his wife with a black man. And the wives were like, eh, okay, I'll try it. But then it, you know, didn't work, blew up. Interestingly – Did it
0: blow up because they did have sex and the guy got jealous or – did they not do it and then the girls felt weird about it? Like
1: Kind of de- all the above. okay. You know? And the guy was pretty obsessive about it. Um, and, and I said in the book, I would be really easy to diagnose the guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction. The interesting thing was that was really all people wanted to talk about. They mm-hmm. were like, well, you don't believe in sex addiction? Everybody else does? And I said, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's not in the DSM. The DSM is a manual of diagnoses and it has no, it, sex addiction has been rejected from there for about 40 years based on poor science. And so so I said, well, maybe I'm wrong, and so I started looking at that and that whole concept and, and uh, ended up with my second book called The Myth of Sex Addiction, where I really question and challenge that whole field. Interestingly, I'll circle back and say I was no longer depressed because it turns out that... um uh, talking to people about hot, kinky sex is almost as good for treating your depression as having lots of hot, kinky sex. <laughs> and then I'll also point out that, you know, I'm just fascinated by the way the news, um, is bringing everything, uh, you know, out now. Um, you know, Paul Manafort just went to jail. Um, Trump's, uh, campaign president right and um, it came out uh, about two months ago that his daughters uh, their uh, text messages in their phones had gotten hacked and it was released and um, it reveals that Manafort apparently was a cuckold really loved to have his wife um, you know have gang bangs
0: about this
1: I, it, it, it was I hear about it, it this? was it was kept pretty quiet. I published a piece about it that didn't get a lot of attention. But um, Manafort loved to watch his wife, um, you know, have gangbangs with with black men, and then after they left, he could, you know, kind of perform and get it up. Apparently, it was
0: a. I love that they found it because his
1: daughters were talking. That's about right. This. That's right. And and in the in their text, they said, you know, um, Dad, you know, thinks he, Dad, Mom think he's a sex addict, and I'm like, yeah. geez, you know, this is these are my books.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's it's just so so interesting how how all of this stuff is just coming out. Yeah,
0: um, that's really interesting. You know, because I don't I don't know if you know this about me, but my parents were swingers, and they used to go to orgy parties. And um, you know, my mom was very promiscuous, and my parents have been together since. Uh, well, they've been together for fifty years. They've been married for um, almost forty years. And they're still together and mm-hmm. um, they have, you know, a great relationship. I have a brother and a sister. We're all very, very close as a family. And it's just been interesting to me, you know, growing up in a um, sexually liberal family, you know, with parents who were swingers and, and we all know that they were swingers. I mean, it's, it wasn't something certain thing that they certainly like brought up when mm-hmm. we were children, but, you know, we became older, we became aware of it and... We, we don't care. Right. And, you know, I have one of the healthiest family relationships that I know of. I have lots of friends who have very conservative, you know, Christian parents um, and, uh, you know, have very strict morals and ideas about um, what sex should and shouldn't be. And I just find it ironic that, you know, we have such a better relationship Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with each other. And my parents have always been, you know, have always talked about how it's just, you know, about open communication Mm -hmm. and about talking and about, um, you know, the lack of shame and the lack of uh, slut shaming and that kind of thing that that exists. And I just...
1: That shame is just, it's just so insidious and and so damaging. I mean, uh, all of the research at this point is really generating the inescapable conclusion, that all of the sexual things that we, we, mental health industries, society, churches, everything else, all of the sexual things that we have said were bad for people, it turns out what's actually bad is the shame associated with those behaviors. Right. And um, the more we, the more we shame people, you know, the more, the more damaged they become. and paradoxically, the greater difficulty they have kind of controlling those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, the But, you know, swinging, um, some recent research just last year showed that, uh, you know, swinging couples or individuals have the highest level of sexual satisfaction mm-hmm. of any relationship styles. And, and And so one of the things I talk about with folks is that you know, you, you need to know yourself. You need to understand yourself. And if you are a high libido person, if you are a person with high sexual sensation seeking, you know, you're really interested in, you know, pushing those edges and riding that taboo, you know, the the thrill of the unknown or the new person is really powerful to you, then you need to think carefully before committing to a monogamous relationship because that might be challenging for you.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, Again, the fascinating thing I think that's happening nowadays is that we are offering many more options to people um, to fit them and and options in terms of relationships. You you can choose polyamory or you can choose swinging or you can choose an open relationship or this, that or the other thing – and what's really really fascinating to me is helping people to figure out how to negotiate and identify a sexual and relationship style that fits them. Right um you know the, 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 there's this neat research with with swingers that showed that um, swingers tend to be more politically conservative um, but they are more socially liberal than most of their politically conservative counterparts okay so that you know um uh, it, throughout the Midwest and, and the and rest of the country most swingers tend to be Republican but even though they're Republican they're more open-minded about gender values and gender stereotyping and less shaming a around LGBT issues... Mm-hmm. Um, there is something about being exposed to lots of other people's sex that breaks down your idea that my kind of sex is the only kind of sex that's right. The like fascin- a
0: heightened sense of level of communication. Yeah. Now,
1: yeah. the fascinating thing is we, say this, we see the same impact from people watching porn, the, mm. that people who watch more porn have more egalitarian values, are more likely to support feminism, are more likely to support female rights and female autonomy. Um, it 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 kills me when feminists are attacking and trying to shame and shut down porn because, in fact, they should be encouraging more men to watch porn because it breaks down those ideas and barriers um, around, for instance, uh, female pleasure and female autonomy.
0: So you don't agree with the fact that porn um, makes – degrades women and makes men see women only as sex objects and only as tools of their pleasure and not as real people?
1: No more so than the United States Congress does these days. I mean, (laughs) you know, I. Yeah, there are hard things in porn. Um, You know, there are forms of pornography that, um, you know, that I find challenging um, uh, to even know exist. Um, And. However, let's be clear that, you know, pornography is media and media reflects society. Media doesn't actually drive society. Media reflects what exists in society and is the voice of society's kind of unconscious. So everything that's in porn is in us. Mm. It's in our society. The things that are that we're working out in, in pornography are things that our society is trying to figure out, mm-hmm. whether it's issues around racism, it's just issues around sexism, it's issues around, you know, um kink and, and female sexuality or, or homosexuality or anything. That's why that stuff is there. And that's why it's so compelling. That's why people watch it so much mm-hmm. because it, it touches something inside them that they're working through.
0: It's interesting that you say that because, you know, when you look at porn um, and you look at the, the audience of certain types of porn, like say so you look at Japanese porn, right? right? Japanese porn has a lot of um, bondage. It has a lot of, I, I don't know, quasi-rape or, or mm-hmm. rape. It has a lot of like, uh, you know, kind of sexually violent images. And, and Japan is a pretty sexually repressed culture. So, um and then also too, you look at um, you know, the the people who consume, you know, interracial porn. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the those people come from red states. Mm-hmm. You know, where there are states where there's right. a lot of prevalent racism and, and it's it's mostly consumed by Americans. One thing that's really interesting that a lot of people don't know is that uh, here in America, interracial porn, there's things called an inter, an IR rate, interracial rate. And a lot of times girls will charge more money to do a scene with a black man, right? It can command a higher rate. But that doesn't exist in Europe. Mm -hmm. IR rates, IR scenes, Mm -hmm, all that mm -hmm. whole thing – In Europe, like, that's not a thing. Like, you have sex with dudes, you have sex with guys of all color, but here in America, there's a very specific thing about having sex with black men. And interracial interracial porn doesn't even mean a woman and a a Latin man, a woman and an Asian man, or even a black woman and a white man. It's specifically a Mm -hmm. white woman and a black
1: man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine um is a, a porn performer from Florida, Demi Sutra on uh, uh Twitter and she um African American woman and um she and I were having drinks and then that was one of the things she said. She she said, "I don't get paid more for having sex with a white man." Mm-mm. Um and, and <sighs> It's not to say that, you know, the porn industry is lily white. And, and, and frankly, I don't, I don't think, I don't think any industry is. I mean, Jesus, look at Disney. You can't say Disney's not exploiting people. Um, you know, look at the NFL and, and the, the concussion rates. People who are upset and, and concerned about, you know, porn performers being taken advantage of or exploited. What are they doing about NFL yeah. and poor African American youth from the ghetto who are exploited in football with their brains damaged for the rest of their lives for our entertainment? Yeah. Um I got some issues with that. Yeah. Let's deal with the exploitation and the you know all of that all of those poor ethics throughout media and entertainment. Yeah. We single out pornography because it's sexy and, so, you know, sex is always a sexy, shiny object that grabs people's attention and it distracts right. and then it brings up all these morality issues without you noticing. We treat sex differently from any other human behavior and as a psychologist, you know, part of my job is to try and remove my morality from uh, working with and assessing and diagnosing and treating people Um and so I have to look at sex as equivalent to any other human behavior, whether it's working or playing or sports or whatever. And when we look at it that way, we can start removing some of the shame. And then when we remove the shame, we can help people with some of these problems, um, that otherwise they, they struggle greatly with. You know, it, Religion is is one of the things that's going on right now, I and mean, religion's been going on for thousands of years, yeah. right? But um, what we're seeing right now is this incredible conflict between religious values and um, sexual issues, specifically around porn. Porn is like the canary in a coal mine right now because you know what happened. Uh, my belief, my argument is that um there are you know generations of people who you know were not taught anything about their sexuality they weren't taught how to understand or manage their sexual feelings and um they were taught there's a right way to have sex right you know there's a right way to be in a relationship um anything else is sinful and bad now the internet comes along and they can access porn and sexual fulfillment at a moment's notice they do so and it feels great and then they feel guilty and shitty afterwards, mm-hmm. and because they 're doing and enjoying something that they were taught was bad, and by doing so makes them bad, makes them a bad person um, and then when they you know when, when they seek help they 're told well you 're a sex addict you 're a porn addict and um, so so now you 're a bad person now you 're not not just a bad person you 're a diseased person. <laughs> Um, and so the people you know start focusing on trying to control their sexuality, trying to trying to suppress it and and this fascinating research from this Israeli researcher this year showed that religious people who attempt to suppress sexual thoughts experience an increase in frequency and intensity of sexual thoughts don 't think of a naked white elephant if you do you 're a dirty nos- naughty pervert. And trying to stop yourself from thinking of that naked white elephant makes you think about it a lot more. Yeah, and then you start out, you end up in this spiral of self hatred. Um, you know, people who watch porn and are religious um, are more likely to identify as, as as addicted to pornography. The predictor of of identifying as a, as a porn addict is not how much porn you watch, but it's a conflict with your religious values.
0: Yeah.
1: And and so those people are really suffering and struggling right now um, and deserve help. But the help they're getting right now actually typically is making it worse.
0: It's interesting that you say that because, you know, just recently, um, obviously with the the whole controversy around the Catholic Church and all the molestation cases – You know, the Pope himself suggested that perhaps priests shouldn't be celibate and they should be allowed to marry, which to me I feel like is insanely obvious. Like sexuality Mm -hmm. is one of the strongest drives behind all human behavior. It's, I mean, it's been instilled in us because it's – It's what we need in order to procreate and to continue to exist on this planet. And so when you tell people that they can never have sex, they can never have that intimate bond with another human Mm -hmm. being, I just find that it always works itself out in some other sick and perverted ways. And, you know, that's not just the priests in the Catholic Church. I think you could apply that. To, you know, anybody who's been sexually repressed, you see that everywhere in, you know, countries where there's high levels of sexual repression, you have higher levels of violence Mm -hmm. against women, sex crimes, and and you talk about that in your book. And so, um, I mean, to me, it seems incredibly obvious, but I know that that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. So uh, what what do you think, I have a question though, what do you think about... What about people? So, you don't believe in sex addiction. You don't believe in porn addiction. What about people who say that they compulsively cannot stop watching porn and that it interferes with their lifestyle and it interferes with their work and that it's something they spend all their time on the internet? What do you think Mm -hmm. that, that that is?
1: So, you know, I hear that story a lot, um, and first I have to say that typically that is a self-correcting problem. If you lose your job because you're watching porn, eventually you're going to lose the ability to pay for the internet, <laughs> and uh, that problem's going to kind of go away. Um, research in Canada actually found that, you know, so-called behavioral addictions, including porn addiction – typically resolve without treatment within six months to a year. Mm-hmm. This is about adjustment. Um, it's about accommodation and adaptation. Um, now, what I will say, though, is that, you know, significant research around these issues identifies that as many as 90% of these folks struggling with sex or porn addiction um, have another mental health issue, mm-hmm. typically depression or anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, sometimes autism, and um, this repetitive kind of obsessive we'll call it compulsive behavior um is a symptom of something else now one of the things that you know that it is men who are getting diagnosed with this. Mm-hmm. Women who get diagnosed as, as sex addicts or love addicts is typically all about slut shaming. And these women are not typically actually having certainly as much sex as your mom did, right? <laughs> mom but your mom fa- <laughs> was able to accommodate that and negotiate that within their marriage, so they had no problem. I actually yeah. treated this one guy who, um, you know, he was obsessed with being a swinger, and his first two wives um, divorced him, and therapists diagnosed him as a sex addict because he really wanted to be a swinger. His third wife cured him and he was no longer a sex addict. How did she cure him? She was a fucking swinger. <laughs> right? So so now, now now, this is okay. Right.
0: So two of the people that I met that I've known in person who said that they struggle with porn addiction were both alcoholics.
1: Yeah. And, and so then we have to start looking at how is this behavior a symptom of these other problems? Right. Um, men... Um, I envy women in a lot of ways, Um, besides the whole, you know, multiple orgasms kind of thing, that women are taught from a very early age to express and experience um, negative emotions and to to learn how to cope with them and deal with them. Guys are told, suck it up. Mm -hmm. And so we have all of these men who, you know, don't know how to manage negative emotions, depression, sadness, anger, um, anxiety, worry, and – Masturbation and watching porn is a really effective way to change the way your brain is working at the moment Mm. and turn on some of those sexual kind of components of your brain that make you not worry. When we are turned on, it's hard to worry about stuff. And so that feels really good for somebody who is feeling depressed or feeling sad and really worrying a lot. The challenge is, you know, if you're sitting in church and you're stressed out, it's not a good time to watch porn. <laughs> so you need other coping strategies and right. so that's what i see again with lots and lots of these guys who you know um most of my practice um for a while was filled with these guys who were losing losing their job because they gotten caught looking at porn at work and overwhelmingly we find a couple of things one is um that these guys are you know watching porn and masturbating more Let, let's be clear Every argument against porn is covertly an argument against masturbation Mm -hmm. because people jerk off when they watch porn. Ninety percent of porn consumption is accompanied by masturbation. And
0: by the way, I have a solution to all of you guys who uh, watch too much porn and masturbate to it frequently. Work in porn and you won't watch (laughs) porn anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It will ruin it for you.
1: (laughs) Those guys, um, something's going on in their marriage. Typically, they stopped having sex as frequently, mm. and um, research shows that men use masturbation and porn as a way to compensate for decreased sex frequency within the marriage. And also, it's not just frequency, but in, you know, I've treated many men with you know fetishes or you know desires or interests that they couldn't fulfill within their marriage because it was shamed or not allowed, whatever, and so they use porn as a way to as a, as a way to compensate for that. Um, we need to look at how to help those men and couples negotiate those issues um the you know research looking at at the effect of porn on marriages finds that if if a husband and watch husband and wife watch as much porn equally or if they watch porn together, there's no negative impact on the marriage. But when the husband watches porn in secret or when one or both of the partners are religious. The porn use correlates with negative impact on the marriage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's not the porn here. The porn is uh, is a is an indicator of a mismatched libido, of inability to negotiate sexual needs within the marriage, um, to talk about sexuality, and that there's a lot of shame around the sexuality. Though, and again, back to the shame, those are the things that are causing these problems. But it's real easy to say, "Oh, see, it's porn." As opposed to digging deeper and let's treat the real issue. I mean, what I like to say is, if I walk in the doctor's office and I'm sneezing, my doctor doesn't say, "David, you know, you got a sneezing addiction. You need to stop that." <laughs> Instead, tries to figure out, do I have a virus? Do I have a bacterial infection? Do I have allergies? And we that's
0: have to. Really just a symptom, isn't that's, that's right.
1: We have to treat each of those differently. Right. Porn and porn related problems are always, universally, a symptom of something else. And if we treat the porn, we're missing the point.
0: Right, right. You know, it's interesting because I'm actually, um, I'm in a 12-step program. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been in it for years. And we always talk about how the alcoholism and drinking is absolutely a symptom of something else that's wrong with us inside. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we talk about how, like, it doesn't actually even really matter whether or not um, your problem is alcohol or if it's drugs or if it's mm-hmm. sex, it's always like it's mm-hmm. symptomatic of something else that's a problem in us. Yeah, um, I really liked how you talk about um, in Ethical Porn for Dicks, which is the book My third book. that I yeah. did, your third book that I did read. Because, you know, on this show, I'm a woman, obviously, I have a lot of women on here. A lot of times we talk about how porn and how it affects women and, and what is feminist porn and can there be feminist porn and, um, you know, how women are affected in porn. But you really tackle porn and men and ethical porn addicts mm-hmm. because you really want to talk to men about, you know, how they are ashamed for watching porn and porn and sex addiction. So... Um, what brought you to that? Did you just see that there was like a vacuum for that, that nobody was really
1: ever talking? Katie Couric. Katie Couric. Yeah, I dedicated the book to Katie Couric.
0: Okay, interesting. um,
1: uh, Which I I suspect she hates. (laughs) Um, So it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. I um, uh, was asked to go on Katie's show. Um, She had a talk show a couple of years ago. And um, uh, my episode was like the last episode of of her talk show. And um, it, it retired after that. And...
0: It was the very last one yeah oh, yeah man.
1: and and I was also in, apparently i'm the curse of death. I was also um, um one of anderson cooper's very last guest on his talk show, so um people don't bring me on t- on talk I shows anymore this
0: podcast isn't going <laughs> to yeah. end after
1: this sorry, maybe I should have told you about that informed consent um so yeah, so Katie brought me on to talk about pornography and um uh, and research about pornography and uh it was a really challenging experience. Katie, Katie, you know, Katie is deeply Catholic and, um, and self-identified in the show as a prude. And, um, and as I talked about the research and kept challenging some of the myths that she was putting out there, you know, that, that, you know, watching porn increases, you know, kids having sex and, and that kids are watching porn younger and younger and younger and just, and that porn is causing erectile dysfunction and, and all of these just frankly scare tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, she got upset and interestingly you're in the porn industry. She 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 said to me, you know, David, do you work for the porn industry? And I'm like, "No, I work for people who want us to make good decisions for the right reasons." Mm-hmm. Um she hit herself in the head one time and she on the show and she said, "You know, um if you talk about research one more time." I'm like, "That's that's what I'm here for." <laughs> but I realized um after that that you know, talking about this stuff in that way can be kind of inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that's one of the things that, that the anti-porn and, and anti-kind of sex people are good at is using these anecdotes. Um, one lady calls them, which I think is brilliant. Um, I left the show and went back to the hotel. I went to the bar. Um, I looked like I'm sure I got run over by a truck. And the two um, bartenders, both men, were like, dude, what's going on? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, this is what just happened. And they're like, wow, yeah, I watch porn and I never, I never talk. So we ended up having this conversation. Right. We, had the, we had the conversation at the bar that I wished we could have had on uh, on the show. Right and i left and i said okay we i need to figure out how to do this differently and so i wrote ethical porn for dicks which is radically different from my other books i wrote it for guys it's it's in short sections i wrote the book three different times um to try and get to the right kind of style i wrote a lot of the book on my phone in meetings when i got bored mm-hmm. um not during therapy i don't pull out my phone during <laughs> therapy but during like business meetings and stuff right. and um and I wrote it, not talking about the research, but talking about porn as though I was having a beer with a guy yeah. because I guess
0: it was very accessible. Yeah. language. it wasn't very verbose. It wasn't filled with a lot of like, right, you know, superfluous words. Data and, says, yeah.
1: and because guys are the ones that are getting thrown under the bus right now, testicles first, right? You know, the um, in all of this issue, and guys can't really talk about it. And guys, you know, if a guy. You know, um, gets caught watching porn by his wife or girlfriend, then it's assumed, you know, he's cheating on her with the porn. Um, interestingly, this neat research, um, compared the belief that watching porn is cheating. Between Americans and Europeans and found that in the Americans, um, having low self-esteem, less experience of pornography, and not actually being in a relationship right now increased the chances that someone would view pornography as cheating. Mm-hmm. But And being religious. Being right. religious overwhelmingly drove it. But interestingly, in, in the European population, being religious and low self-esteem didn't predict perceiving pornography as infidelity. And I talked to the author and he said, look, he said, Europeans don't take infidelity and don't take religion as seriously as Americans.
0: do." That's so true. My mom has, I mean, my mother's British.
1: Oh, well, there <laughs> you go. I mean. There you go. Yeah,
0: exactly. So she's always like kind of laughed at, at how, um, I mean, I remember the one thing that she said to me was, you know, she never really saw cheating as like a great reason to leave your spouse. Um, and, uh, oh God, there was another quote by a woman who was married to an incredibly famous actor and she was always, she was also British and he, he, you know, was, had a lot of affairs with other women and she never left him. Oh God, I think he died recently or maybe she died recently and and they asked her and, and she just basically said like it's kind of not that big of a deal to me that he's had these affairs with these other women. You know, he always came home to me in the end and it's, she said something along the lines of how other people really wanted her to make a big deal about it. Mm-hmm. But she, and like people were offended that she wasn't that offended. Right.
1: It's not that, you know, infidelity, I mean, is, is a great thing and it's not that I'm recommending infidelity to right. people, but I am saying that again, we treat sexuality there as though it is intrinsically a moral thermometer that indicates you know you can be the you know you can be a wonderful amazing person who gives to charity and takes care of kittens and every every other wonderful amazing thing but you get cha- caught cheating and all of a sudden you are rock bottom slime mm-hmm. And there is a belief that, that sexual infidelity, you know, reveals your true moral character. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, we're treating sex separately and differently from every other behavior. And I think that, um, Europeans, largely because they are less religious, um, are putting less pressure on sex and view infidelity as, well, (laughs) it's something we didn't, we, we wish didn't happen. Um, but I also wish, you know, you didn't, Cheat on your taxes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's
0: kind of like that whole situation where everybody couldn't believe the huge deal that Americans were making over the Bill Clinton scandal. Right. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Like the rest of the world was like, dude, Mm -hmm. who, you know what I mean? Like who cares what he does in his personal life? But, you know, for us, it was grounds for impeachment. Right. You know, whereas, I mean, don't get me started on our current president. Mm -hmm. We, We won't get into that. But, you
1: know, it, it, it is it is truly fascinating the degree to which you know um, our sexual conflict um, has now just you know erupted into um, into social dialogue and you know you look at the Me Too movement and you look at you know politics these days um, it is all us working through that sexual conflict. And you know, you mentioned, you know, rough sex or simulated rape porn earlier and data is very clear that women search for and seek out rough sex violent sex porn more than men do.
0: Okay, I was going to ask you about that because yeah. I'm totally into that shit. Okay. Like um like in my own personal mm-hmm, life, mm-hmm. I'm very submissive. Um I I definitely like rough sex. Um that is is very hot to me. Now, I don't produce any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't fault people who do mm-hmm. as long as, you know, it's between consenting adults and and a lot of these girls are on board for that kind of right. thing. A lot of girls that I know and mm-hmm. that I talk to are really into that kind of rough sex. So um, why do you, you know, and there's the whole like rape fantasy thing yeah. with women. Um, I had uh, Christopher Ryan on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys should listen to the episode if you haven't already. Um, he's an author. He wrote Sex at Dawn, and and I asked him. He's was, a good friend of mine. Yeah, he's he's amazing, great guy, and um, he talked. I asked him about that. I said, "Why do you think that's the case?" And he talks about how he believes that you know society has repressed uh, female sexuality for so long. And, you know, we're supposed to feel bad about enjoying sex that almost in some strange way, you know, being forced to have sex is like the only w- – it's like we, we no longer have responsibility for mm-hmm. the sex. It takes it away over- that responsibility. Yeah. It
1: the overcomes thing. that internal that internal kind of prohibition and barrier. Right. Then you're not a slut because you, you didn't choose it. You got right. kind of forced into it. Right. We also <clears> – <throat> You know, we have romanticized and idealized that kind of ravishment, <clears throat> fantasy, sorry, <clears throat> for many years. Every uh, every romance novel, yes. you know, involves, you know, the, the, the power of the man overcoming the woman and she swoons. Um,
0: it's so interesting you say that because I remember – I used to read cheesy romance novels when I was very young. Um, and I remember reading this one. And and this is before, like, I really, you know, I was young, so I didn't really know what I was into sexually, obviously, but I was reading one, and there was this line where, you know, the bad guy um, calls a woman into his bedroom, and he calls her a slut, and I remember instantly being turned on and being like, and then going back and rereading that over mm-hmm. and over again. And and being turned on by that, and being confused that I was turned on by right. that.
1: Now, now there is interesting research showing that you know women physiologically respond with sexual arousal to material that they don't necessarily find psychologically arousing, mm. and that that lubrication, the blood flow in the vagina, may have been um, essentially a, a protective measure that evolved in order to protect women from developing infections or from abrasions oh, during rape. Right. Wow. If you get lubricated more easily, yeah, then to tear. that's right. And so there is there is some speculation. I think it's an interesting theory that, um, that 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 women's you know women actually are much more sexually responsive and arousing arousal response to sexuality than men um, at a much more general universal level. But as Chris said, you, you know, we, yeah, we slut shame women for for showing that you're turned on or being sexual. So women are taught to suppress it and not express it. And then, and then women don't get the chance to kind of work through that stuff. And then we, and then we. And then we tell them if you have this fantasy, you're bad. I mean, again, the, you know, I don't mean to be a broken record about this, but the sex addiction industry for 20, 25 years said that if you had fantasies of BDSM, bondage, discipline, submission, stuff like that, that y- you were a pervert and you were sick and you were diseased. And then what changed it was Fifty Shades of Grey. When Fifty Shades of Grey sold over 100 million copies and all of a sudden they had to face the fact that there were housewives around the country, their own wives <laughs> wanted this. Um, they had to they they then all of a sudden they turned and they said well okay maybe that's normal right i think that you know it, the interesting thing is in in the united kingdom you know british uh your mom's british but they are in a very conservative area right now com, you know regarding porn they are restricting access to porn one of the first kinds of pornography they restricted access to was this rape and and simulated violent porn mm-hmm. um under the premise that that would would prevent rape, but in fact it 's the reverse. Um, access to that kind of pornography and access to pornography in general reduces rates of sexual violence in societies now, right. and as they were banning um, rape porn in the United Kingdom, they preferentially were impacting female porn consumers because that 's what they watch. Um, now, I will say, and, and there 's a researcher here at UCLA, Neil Malamuth um, who 's a brilliant guy. Um, he and I are on different sides of the table, but um, he, you know he 's got good research it shows that there is about six percent of men who um, if they watch rough sex, violent sex, simulated sex porn simulated rape porn, um, that it does increase their chances of engaging in sexual violence. But the thing is it 's not the porn it 's the guy because those he's guys to that he 's already predisposed to that. He is a guy with substance use issues who's is disinhibited, he's a guy who is, you know, sociopathic and doesn't think the rules um uh, you know pr- uh, apply to him and he's a misogynist. He views women as property and things to be grabbed because you can, right? Mm, yes. uh, by the pussy. uh I didn't say that. <laughs> um <laughs> Those issues are the things that predispose guys, um, uh, to engaging in sexual violence. Violent porn may tip them over the, uh, over the edge. However, there's no evidence and there's no research whatsoever that says changing or restricting access to that porn reduces those guys' rates of violence. Mm-hmm. But keeping them sober, teaching them not to be misogynistic dicks, mm-hmm. and teaching them to follow the rules, um, do, do reduce rates of sexual violence. And so, again, porn is this sexy, shine, shiny object that we're like, oh, let's go after that, as opposed to dealing with all the rest of the issues. I it's mean, kind
0: of like video games.
1: Yes. Guns yeah. And I mean, you, violence. that's right. Video game addiction. You know, that's the latest kind of thing. And and again, there's, you know, tremendous evidence showing that, you know, kids who struggle with video game addiction, um, you know, have lots of other issues. And even more interestingly that the criminologists therapists and researchers who believe in video game addiction just happen to be older people with more negative attitudes towards video games and youth and less experience of video games and so again this is this is bias mm-hmm. and we need in order to help people who are struggling with these issues we need to remove that bias because bias leads to shame and shame actually makes it harder to change or reduce these problems.
0: Right. Now, I want to also talk about another um, part of your book that I found really interesting, um, where you talk about women suppressing the sexuality of other women, not necessarily men. Um, so, you wrote a social psychologist Roy Baumeister. Baumeister, yeah. Baumeister and Jean Twinge
1: yeah. wrote
0: a powerful scholarly article where they argued that women actually suppress the sexuality of other women, not men. Their premise was that control of sexuality was historically one of women's only commodities and that women had to control the market, so to speak, by stigmatizing, shaming, and suppressing those who might offer free, cheap, or easy sex. So it's a whole idea of no one's going to buy the cow if they can get the milk for free, which is mm-hmm. you know, a right. phrase that I fucking hate. I know. And um, you actually also talk about a really interesting conversation that you saw on Twitter between sex workers about... Um, you know, uh, uh, pros- their their rates of prostitution. So, I kind of want you to talk a little bit about that because I found that to be really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know what, Baummeister and and and, and Twinge, uh, you know, found was that. Um, uh, it is typically women who act to suppress or control the sexuality of other women, not men. And, you know, Mae West said it um, very, very well. She said, you know, men love a slut because they hope history is going to repeat itself. <laughs> women, ha- you know, women are typically the opponents against porn. Women are typically the opponents against, um, you know, sex work and mm-hmm. sex work legalization. Um because it affects the, the, the market cost of, of sex. How much are you as a person, as a man, going to invest in order to get sex? Are you going to invest, you know, in a marriage and family and stability in order to get sex? Now, husbands who do invest in that get more sex. Mm-hmm. The, you know, hu- married men have more sex than single men. Mm-hmm. So, Marriage is, Wait, really? yeah, really <laughs> across their lifespan. I swear to God, isn't that interesting? Oh, okay. That you know, it, it's
0: like the opposite of what most people. That's say. <laughs> right.
1: But but if you look over time, they are more likely to have more sex. I mean, yeah. One one thing you have to understand, and I'm going to get back to the point, but um, is that throughout human history, um, research with mitochondrial DNA shows that 80 percent of the human females who ever lived on this planet reproduced, had children, but only 40 percent of the human and males who ever lived on this planet reproduced. Mm. 60% of men died young, died before they could um, reproduce, or never had access to reproduction. Mm -hmm. Um, Because powerful, wealthy men kept all the hot chicks to themselves, right? right? With harems and everything else. Uh, You know, the the traditional marriage in the Bible is polygamy. It's not monogamy. Mm -hmm. Um, So when conservatives tell me they support traditional marriage, I always laugh. Wow, you're into polygamy? How many wives have you got, dude? Um, (laughs) But coming back to this 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 female suppression issue is that it, women's only really commodity throughout throughout much of history was sexuality. Now, in societies where women had greater economic independence and greater control of their own economy, there was greater rates of female um infidelity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And even today, as women's income goes up, infidelity goes up, approaching rates of men because if the woman gets caught, she doesn't lose everything, right? right. And she's not on the street homeless. Um, so that sex was the only commodity that many women had and they had to control the price of it in order to get the stability and protection and care for themselves and their children. Um, now we live in a different society, though. Now, and we live in a society where women have much greater in- independence and economic abilities of their own. Um, Gail Dines is, you know, a very famous anti-porn activist, and she's a professor, and you know, she's really, really rabid against pornography. But one one quote that that she gave one time, I I, I cite often. She said, "You know, feminist sex workers and porn stars are the scabs of feminism." And, you know, a scab is somebody who undercuts your price. A scab is somebody who goes against the union, goes against the collective. Mm -hmm. She's saying that women who sell sex are, you know, undercutting the price Mm -hmm. that other women can charge for sex. She's acknowledging there. "This This isn't about sex. This isn't about morality. This is about control.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, the idea if sex is this expensive, hard to access thing, you've got to take a girl Mm -hmm. out on a certain number of dates. You've got to spend a certain amount of money on dinner before she gives it up. But as opposed to if you're just going to give it up for free on the first date you know then you're a slut it's supposed to be something that you're supposed to hold and and give out sparingly and begrudgingly and and you know what what happens when the idea is if if a woman can give sex as freely as a man does right. like then does she no longer
1: have any value mm-hmm and you had the slut walk um here in LA yesterday um you know and uh, Amber Rose you know for several years has been leading this this slut walk again of people coming out and saying um look just because we're not you know keeping our legs together the way you say you're, we're supposed to mm-hmm. doesn't mean we're bad people and that shame that you keep hitting us with is what is causing the harm right it's causing the damage and you know it but porn puts a high-speed milk faucet in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And now... There are lots of guys who are choosing to masturbate to porn rather than pursue a relationship because sometimes a relationship can be too drama, too dramatic, too challenging, too demanding for them. And frankly, it is easier, right? Because right. you know the internet is very easy to satisfy. You don't have to buy it dinner for it to put out. <laughs> you know, um, the the women in porn come very easily. You don't have to be a particularly good lover. Yeah. Um, as he says, that sit there and masturbate, and all you to do to turn it on is push the button, right? Um, and and that unfortunately is one of the challenges, you know, is that people are learning lessons from pornography that don't translate very well to real sex because pornography, you know, when you film porn, it doesn't show all the negotiation, it doesn't show all the preparation because it's fantasy; it's not supposed to, right. you know. I mean, you know, when I when we watch Venom, it doesn't, you know the, the we don't see all the special effects mm-hmm. that make this impossible thing possible. Right. Right? And we're not supposed to. It, right. It's it's escape. Porn is escape too. The problem is that we have grossly neglected adolescents and children in our society and we have generations now of kids um, who were taught nothing about sex because abstinence-only kind of education – and now they're learning about sex from porn and then everybody's all upset. Well, they're learning bad lessons. Well, whose fucking fault is that?
0: <laughs> that is so true. I mean, the lack of sexual education here in the states is absolutely incredible.
1: It's it's appalling. And in you know, in the Netherlands where they um start with developmentally appropriate sex education as early as six and seven, mm-hmm. um, with, you know, letting kids see what genitalia and naked bodies look like mm-hmm. at those early ages. Lower rates of sexual violence, lower rates of teen pregnancy, um, much greater levels of healthy kind of self-directed sexuality mm-hmm. um, because they're removing the shame.
0: Right. Um, <clears throat> So do you think then that there is a way that porn can be beneficial and helpful to people?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see, you know, for instance, um, you know, uh, gay people consume more porn than straight people. Why? Because oftentimes they're living in the closet and that is their one outlet. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, uh, Marcus Bachman is a psychologist and and a minister and husband of Michelle Bachman, Republican politician. Um, Bachman argues that porn um, causes uh, people to become gay through porn addiction porn is apparently a slippery slope coded in KY you start at the top looking at Playboy you end up at the bottom fucking sheep and other uh, other men Um, so Porn can be an outlet and porn, porn can also teach us about our sexual desires. One of the things I talk about with guys is, you know, what kind of porn you watch? Cause I think it's really important. It actually shows us something. Porn is sexual fantasy made external, made visible to other people. And so when I talk to you about what kind of porn you watch, what kind of women you like in porn, who's your favorite performer and why do you like her? Well, she seems really genuine. She seems to really in, in, enjoy it. She doesn't seem to get all uptight and upset. And, and then I can say, so that's what you really are interested in in real life. You would really like to have a partner who is, you know, laid back about sex and, and, and into it as much as you are and lets you feel good about being dirty and perverted with her. Um, and guys go, Oh, yeah, kind of. And and then, wow, so the women you've been having sex with don't act that way. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about why, you know, and let's talk about maybe how you can find women um, that will act in those kinds of ways with you and how you can cre- create a relationship where they can. Um those are the things we can learn about sex That's from our from porn.
0: That you can use porn as a barometer to actually see like what kind of women that you mm-hmm. would actually have a healthy relationship with as opposed to the kinds of women that you might think you would yeah. have a healthy relationship That's with. That's right. It's an interesting insight into one's psyche that mm-hmm. I would have never thought
1: of it that way. And, you know, like um, uh, uh, one of the very common forms of porn right now is is cuckold porn um, that, you know, has really increased in frequency and and popularity over the past few years. And um, uh, one of the really common elements in it and in a lot of cuckold fantasy is forced bisexuality, where the man is forced by his dominant wife or her male lover to engage in homosexual behaviors. That is the exact same thing as the rape fantasy in women. It is Mm -hmm. men – wanting to engage sexually with the other man, but they have to be forced into it. They have to be forced over the hump, so to speak. And that, again, helps us then to understand and helps us to understand some of those suppressed or shamed secret bisexual fantasies that the man might have, but doesn't feel like it's okay to, to express.
0: Right. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really, really interesting. Um, I want to make sure that everybody knows that they should get his books, um, Insatiable Wives, Ethical Porn for Dicks, and what was the third one? The Myth of Sex Addiction. The Myth of Sex Addiction. And uh, what's your website and social media handles they can find you on?
1: Yeah, you know, um, at Twitter, um, uh, Twitter, at Dr. David Lay, last name is L-E-Y, is the best way to find me. You know, I'm kind of lazy. I don't really have a website. You can find me on Psychology Today. I write a lot there. And if you just Google David Lay or Dr. David Lay, that's the website that pops up the most. Um, And you can find lots of blog stuff that I've written about all of this stuff and about sexual psychology.
0: Is there anything that you want to, like, leave, especially the men listening to the podcast today, with any last words of advice or wisdom about porn and...
1: Uh, You know, one guy who read my – read Ethical Porn for Dicks, he read an early version of it, and I wish that I had had the ability to put his quote in the book. He said after reading the book, he went and he talked to his wife about porn. And about his porn consumption, and they'd never really had an honest kind of conversation about it where she wasn't judging him um, for porn or feeling like it was cheating and everything else. And he said they left the conversation with kind of a realization that porn for him was the same thing as her vibrator was for her. It, Her vibrator was a way for her to achieve arousal and orgasm more quickly or efficiently than she could otherwise. Porn was the same thing. It was a vehicle for him to achieve and, and, and you know, self-manage kind of his arousal um, uh, sexual desires. When they removed some of that moral pressure, then they got to talk about this stuff and then talk about how to make it part of their relationship and their sex together. That's the kind of conversation I want guys to have.
0: Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much again for coming on. And uh, you guys can follow me at Holly Randall on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Unfiltered. And I'll see you guys next week. I just want to thank you guys for listening. Um, You being here means everything. But what would mean even more to me is if you would go on iTunes, rate and review this podcast and share it with a friend. If you know somebody that's fascinated by the adult industry but doesn't know anything about it or is really into a certain performer or guest that I have on the show, tell them about it because you know podcasts really grow by word of mouth and your recommendation means a lot to me. What also means a lot to me is your money because this does cost me money to produce. So if you can support me by going to my Patreon and joining, I give away really cool prizes, gifts. You get access to the live streams. There's just so much cool stuff that you get in exchange for your support. So go to patreon.com slash Unfiltered. Thank you all. I love you so much and I so appreciate you being here.